0: Let's all stand together, open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. Choir's choir is going to come down to join you. Hebrews chapter 11. It's really good to be in the house of the Lord. Well, the building's full, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start reading in verse 33. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. This is speaking of those who had, the Bible has just listed, who had great faith. The Bible says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. How about this? Stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Now, I don't know, I don't think that means extraterrestrials. I think that that would be... anyway. Um verse thirty five. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goat skins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Lord, help us now as we study your word. Lord, help us to understand just our place in your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, how many of you are thankful that you've not had to endure the things that are listed there. That is the, you know, sometimes chapter 11 of Hebrews is called the Hall of Faith. People that were faithful to the Lord and God listed, but there are some here that they are not named. This morning, I want to preach to you on the significance of one Christian. The significance of one Christian. When you look back in history, you know, the last of the disciples, the last of the apostles was the Apostle John. And he wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos where the Bible says that he was in prison. He was in captivity for the Lord because he ministered the Word of God. You know, its tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil. Can you imagine? Horrible, horrible. But because of his faithfulness, we have the Gospel of John. We have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we also have the book of Revelation. Well, that's the significance of one Christian, isn't it? That God used that man greatly. You move on into the early church, and we don't really know the names of a lot of the people that are listed here in the book of Hebrews. People that really had a heart for the Lord and wanted to do something special for Him. There was one man, his name was Melito of Sardis. Melito of Sardis. He lived around 190 A.D. Listen to what he wrote. This was a sermon that he wrote. He said this. He was talking about Israel's rejection of Christ and his crucifixion. He wrote this in 190 A.D. You did not see God. You did not perceive the Lord, Israel. You did not recognize the firstborn of God, begotten before the morning star, who adorned the light, who lit up the day, who divided the darkness, who fixed the first boundary, who hung the earth, who tamed the abyss... Who furnished the world, who arranged the stars in the heavens, who lit up the great lights, who made the angels in heaven, who there established thrones, who formed humanity on the earth. How about that? 190. Later on in the sermon, he says this about Jesus He who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens in place has been fixed in place. He who laid the foundations of the universe has been laid on a tree. The master has been profaned. God has been murdered. Imagine that. Melito Sardis wrote that in 190 A.D. I wonder if we understand that the faith that we have today, the the gospel that we preach, the Bible that we believe, that is exactly the same thing that Melito was preaching just a hundred years after the apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. It's the same faith. There was a man in 160 A.D., even before that, his name was Polycarp, and he had been a faithful preacher. During the persecution in Rome, he was brought into the Colosseum to be tortured. And he was said to reproach Christ, and he would be released. And he said this, 80 and 6 years have I served him. He's 86 years old. 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? Isn't that good? You know, that ought to be our testimony. When someone, young people, when someone wants you to do something at school that would dishonor the Lord Jesus, you could say, how can I blaspheme the one who saved me? How can I dishonor the one who saved me? So this Christian Polycarp, man, he had a great influence. He was actually, this is so interesting. He was a disciple of John. The apostle, and he trained him. And it, it is just interesting the influence of one Christian. The influence of one Christian, Polycarp, Melito of Sardis. It's really interesting. When you look at what happened in that time, there were people standing for the Lord and there were people that started compromising. I've told you before about Adamantius' origin. He was uh, from Alexandria, Egypt, and he ended up going to Caesarea. And there was a school there, and he began corrupting the scriptures. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to marry Greek philosophy with Christianity. And one of his beliefs was, it came from Plato, and that is that that the material is always less or always uh, more corrupt than the spiritual. So God the Father was pure, God the Son had to be less pure. That's blasphemy, isn't it? And so what he did was he began to corrupt the biblical text and he would take out references to the deity of Christ and he corrupted a whole family of Greek manuscripts that are called the Alexandrian text and that followed through and he brought so many other corruptions into Christianity. He didn't believe because of his belief that that the spiritual was better than the material. He believed that the actual words of scripture were corrupt. But there was a spiritual meaning behind the scripture that was holy. And so, what the, and he got that from a misinterpretation where the Bible says that the law killeth, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. So he took that to mean that the words of the Bible would cause trouble. Do you see how crazy that is? And he influenced so much of Christianity by bringing in this allegorical method of Scripture interpretation. That is, it doesn't really mean what it says. There's a spiritual meaning behind it. You don't have to really believe what it says, but there's a spiritual understanding that you have to have. That's completely unbiblical. That comes from origin. Well, through history, there were men like that. And I want you to say this. I want you to understand this. The significance of one Christian. We are still suffering today from the influence of origin. It's a a horrible problem the significance of one Christian. But there were Christians that were standing against the corruptions of origin. So you go through, and there, there was great persecution in the 300s against Christians. And during some of, that, some of that persecution in northern Africa, there was a place called Numidia, and there were a group of people there called the Donatists, and these Donatist Christians were trying to stand for the Lord. Well, some of their pastors, when there was persecution, yielded, and actually threw their Bibles into the fire, and they followed the pagan teaching. Well, when Constantine became emperor, that was the marriage of, there was a, a battle, during this battle, Battle of Milvian Bridge, he saw a sign in the sky, he said, it was a picture of a cross, and it said, in this sign conquer. And so at that point, he married the pagan religion and pagan Roman government, with Christianity, and he is called the first Christian emperor. And so there was the Edict of Toleration in 313. And so after that, there was some liberty for Christians, but really only those who uh, would submit to this state-run church. Well, in, after this persecution in northern Africa, you had these Donatists who, they said that our pastors, according to the Word of God, the Bible says that he must be blameless. Man desire the office of a bishop. Let him first be blameless. The Bible says. And so, if a man had denied the faith and burned his Bible under persecution, they said, "This man is not blameless." How many of you would agree with that? So, if trouble started coming, and I first thing I did was threw my Bible in the fire and hid behind Laura, you might say, "This is not a guy that we want for a pastor." Okay. However tough Laura actually is, this is not the guy that we want for a pastor. And so it's, it's really important that you see this. Well, what happened was the bishop of Rome started gaining more and more power, and this would be before there would have been the office of the pope. But what they did was they started sending representatives to different areas and placing pastors in those places. And the, the pastors that they tried to place in Numidia, the Donatists said, no, these men had denied the faith. And that started a controversy. And there was a man, how many of you have heard of Augustine? Anyone heard of Augustine? Well, Augustine was sent by the Bishop of Rome to settle the problem there. And the way that they settled it was they passed a law that if you disagreed with infant baptism and you disagreed with the appointment of pastors, that you would be killed. And so they went in and they killed 30,000 of these Donatists, these early Baptists. They killed 30,000. So that's more than the population of Sydney. They killed all of those people. And we have the writings between these Donatist pastors and Augustine. And two of the pastors, one of them was named Gaudentius and the other was named Patilian. Patilian wrote to Augustine, "...think you to serve God by killing us with your hand? Ye err, if ye poor mortals think this. God hath, has not hangmen for priests. Christ teaches us to bear wrong, not to revenge it." Amen? Gaudentius, he wrote this. Um, He said, God appointed prophets and fishermen, not princes and soldiers, to spread the faith. Isn't that true? It is so true. Listen to what Augustine wrote back. Now, how many of you have heard good things about Augustine? Raise your hands. You've heard good things about Augustine. Somehow they leave this out. So when the Donatists reproached him for making martyrs of their bishops and elders and told him God would require an account of their blood at the day of judgment, here's what Augustine wrote back. Quote, "...I know nothing about your martyrs. Martyrs? Martyrs to the devil. There are no martyrs out of the church. Beside, it was their obstinacy. They killed themselves." And so what happened was just as in Acts 8, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. These Donatists, they they ended up going into Europe. They were cast out. They ended up going up into Europe and they spread into groups like the Albigenses and the Waldensians and the Paulicians and all of these people who went everywhere preaching the gospel. And the significance of Petillion and Gaudentius and these men, we still have the record of their faithfulness to the Word of God, the significance of one Christian. By the time we get up into the 400s, there's a man, his name is Patrick. Anyone heard of St. Patrick? Remember, he had been captured as a slave. He was from England. He had been captured as a slave and brought over to the island of Ireland. He was able to escape, went back home. He was saved and went back to Ireland as a missionary. And we have nine volumes of his writings. It's amazing that they've been preserved. He wrote in Latin, and he would quote the Latin Bible. Now, it's not the Vulgate. I might talk about the Vulgate in a minute. This is called the Old Latin or the Itala. It was translated, imagine this. The Bible was translated into that Old Latin by 150 A.D. Why? Because you can't be a Christian without a Bible. Isn't that right? (laughs) And so the Bible was put into the languages of the people wherever they would go. In the western part of the world, it was into the old Latin. In 157, it was translated into Syriac, which is kind of, it was like Aramaic. It was the language of the east. And for the next thousand years, those were the Bibles those people used in those areas. And so Patrick goes into those areas and listen to what Patrick would preach. Salvation by grace through faith alone. He preached that baptism had no part in salvation. He preached that the state and the church needed to be separate, that people needed to believe by themselves. He preached the gospel all over those areas. Isn't that wonderful? And the other thing that he did was he led people to the Lord who believed that they should spread the gospel to other places. By the time you get into the 500s, there's a man named Columba, and Columba took the gospel to a place called Iona, and there he made 300 copies of that Latin Bible in his own hand. He personally made 300 copies of that and he started evangelizing the Picts and the Scots and the people in northern Britain. And so the gospel ends up spreading through England and through Scotland and through Ireland because you had the faithfulness of one Christian, the significance of. Of one person. By the time you get to 660, over in Armenia, in the eastern part of the world, there was a man, whose name was Constantine. No, not the Emperor Constantine. This is 300 years later. There's a man named Constantine, and there was a bishop, I'm sorry, a deacon who was running away from a group of Muslims that were going to kill him. And this man named Constantine, he helps him, and he protects him. He keeps him in his house. This deacon gave him a copy of the Bible. And it's believed that he only had the epistles of Paul, the church epistles. So, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy. So, those are the books that he had. You know, you could have a pretty good church if those were the only books of the Bible that you had. And what they did was they, he changed his name from Constantine to Sylvanus. And they would call themselves Silvanus and Silas and Timothy. And they would memorize the scriptures. And everywhere they would go, they would start a church. And they would name the church after one of the churches in the Bible. And they started preaching the gospel. They would memorize entire chapters and entire books of the Bible and go into these places and preach. And it all started with a young man named Constantine who was willing to risk his life for another Christian the significance of one Christian. By the time you get into the 900s, these these Paulicians in Armenia, they start a city called Tepris. And in Tepris, for 150 years, they ended up, they were elected into power. For 150 years, these Paulicians actually were in the government of that area. And because they believed in that separation of church and state, it didn't matter if you were a Mohammedan, a Jew, or a Christian, or whatever sect of Christian you were, you were free to live there without persecution. And it was because of the influence of one man who believed the word of God, the significance of one Christian. If we jump forward almost 100 years, there was a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale was... Uh, an amazing man, he knew seven or eight languages. He's the first person to translate the New Testament from the Greek into English. But he couldn't have done that. Why hadn't that been done before? A portion of the Bible had been translated in the 700s by a guy named the Venerable Bede. I think he had translated the Gospel of John. and that have, But that would have been in Gothic. You couldn't even read it. It's a different language. By the time you get into like 1380, John Wycliffe translated the Bible from the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, into, that would have been Middle English. Again, I've got copies of it. You wouldn't be able to read it. But the, it wasn't accessible to the common person because the printing press hadn't been invented. I mentioned in Sunday school that a copy of that Bible in today's money would have been about, about $40,000. How many of you could afford $40,000 for a book right now? Just the news, Dan and doty They're the only people in the church that could do that. It's just, If you need money, ask Doty; She's got it. Now, it's really important that you get this. It's really important that you get this. These people, they believed in the word of God so much they were willing to die for it. But that Bible translated from the Vulgate. Here's the problem with the Vulgate. I mentioned Origen a little while ago. There was the Bishop of Rome in the 400s. His name was Damasus. And he said that the the Latin Bible was corrupt. Why was the Latin Bible corrupt? Because it didn't agree with his theology. Right? That marriage with Constantine of the church and the pagan Roman religion. Well, the Bible didn't agree with that. And so what happened was he asked Jerome, Saint Jerome, to correct the Bible. And there's a man, his name is Richard Simon. I I quoted him in Sunday school today, that he wrote a book in, in 1689. He's kind of the father of modern textual criticism. He said this, he called Jerome the Latin origin. Another historian says that Jerome exhausted his purse. He, he spent all of his money to buy the works of origin so that he could use the works of origin to correct the Latin Bible. And so all of the errors that made their way into Christianity for a thousand years up until the Reformation, for that thousand years of corruption, it all goes back to that guy named Jerome who corrupted the Scriptures. That's the, text that Wy- that's the only text that Wycliffe had to translate from. So in 1516, there was a guy, his name was Desiderius Erasmus. He was the greatest mind of his generation. He spent 40 years covering all of Europe, going to the great libraries of Europe, and examining these Greek manuscripts. And he compiled a text, the first Greek text that was ever printed in 1516. So by 1525, when William Tyndale is wanting to translate the Bible, he actually had a printed text that he could look at and translate into English that would never have been available before that. So out of that time, all of a sudden, the Bible is beginning to get into the language of the people. Within a 100 years of 1516, when Erasmus printed his text, the Bible was translated into 1,600 languages. Is that amazing? But Tyndale, by the time... Tyndale came along, the Bible had been translated into all the great languages of Europe except English. But it was against the law to have the Bible in English. So Tyndale, he went to the Bishop of London, and remember, Henry VIII, the king, he had wanted to divorce his wife, so he took the church, he took the Church of England out of the Catholic Church, he tore down all the monasteries and ran out the priesthood, and he was gonna be the head of the church. So he had his own bishops. The Bishop of London. Tyndale went to the Bishop of London and wanted to translate the Bible. And what he said, what Tyndale said was, I found there was no place in London or in all of England for Bible translation. So he went to Germany, translated the Bible into English. So now the Bible starts being smuggled into England and they couldn't have that. So he flees to another part of Germany and then he is deceived to come to Belgium. He was put in Belgium for in prison in Belgium for over 400 days then he was condemned as a heretic strangled and burned to death his last words were this Lord open the king of England's eyes and before Henry VIII's death you know what he did he called for a translation of the Bible to be made and he didn't know it but that translation was based on the translation that Indale had done God answered his prayer And so now let me ask you a question. Is there anyone here that's saved today? Anyone here you're saved? Do you know the Bible says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The only way that you were saved is that someone explained what the Bible said to you about the gospel. How many of you that happened in English? Would you raise your hands? Every one of you owes a debt to Tindale. That's amazing, isn't it? Probably 80 to 85% of your New Testament is exactly what Tyndale translated. It's amazing what God used Tyndale to do. And we could go on and on through the centuries where God used a specific individual in a great way to spread the gospel. When the, the people came to America and they established the new land We know that there was not religious liberty here. And so it was people like Roger Williams and John Clark and Isaac Backus and James Manning and James Madison and Patrick Henry that brought about religious liberty into this country so that we can be free. And it's the significance of one person. We know that we wouldn't have the First Amendment to our Constitution in the Bill of Rights. We wouldn't have that without a Baptist preacher named John Leland who they wouldn't ratify the Constitution because there was no religious liberty amendment. And so some people were willing to stand and to have an effect and it lasted forever. Missionaries have been sent around the world. John Patton and and William Carey and Adoniram Judson. William Carey translated the Bible in India to 47 different languages and dialects. And for almost all of those languages, he had to actually invent an alphabet, write a grammar, translate the Bible write a dictionary in their language and then teach them to read it. And then he would translate something like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and other literature so that they could have something to read. Why did he do that? Because you can't be a Baptist without a Bible. 47 different languages and dialects. Adoniram Judson translated the Bible into the Bengali language so these people could have it. And he did it while he was in prison in horrible conditions for 18 months. His wife delivered a baby while he was in prison there in what's called Myanmar now, Burma. And she was so poor, she didn't have anything to eat. She couldn't produce enough milk to feed her baby. And she walked around the village crying, Can someone feed my baby? Can someone feed my baby? That's Adoniram Judson, the missionary's wife. That's what they did so the gospel could go to the people of Burma. It is amazing the significance of one Christian. In 1950, I think, maybe 51, there was a man, his name was Bob Lee, not the Bob Lee from ESPN. This would be a different Bob Lee. And he ran track with a guy in Pueblo, Colorado, and he wanted him to go to church with him. So he'd pull up outside of his house every Sunday morning and roll down his window and yell, Hey, Bob, you going to come to church? (laughs) Just yell out the window every Sunday morning. And finally, one Sunday morning, a 12th grader, my father, Bob Alter, got out of bed, went to church with this guy. And my dad liked music, so he would walk up into the choir and sing in the choir with the people. And one day, a preacher was preaching, and my dad walked out of the choir, got down on his knees, and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Out of that, my dad started the Buckley Road Baptist Church in Liverpool, New York. Buckley Road Baptist Church has started, I think, 25 churches in that New York area. They've given millions of dollars to see churches started around the world. I got saved. I was able to become the pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Sydney, Ohio people have been saved. More importantly than that, maybe to me, as I had children, and now my children are able to grow up to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve God. Why? Because of the significance of one Christian. His name was Bob Lee. There's a man named Ed Parks. And he was a preacher in Oklahoma. And he had met this guy. And he found out that this man and his wife were Mormons. And so he would go to their house and give them the gospel over and over and over again. And to get to the house, he'd have to park his car and walk down this dirt lane over a bridge. And it it was a challenge for him to get to this house. And he'd go back over and over and over again. And Laura's grandfather was saved because of a man named Ed Parks. They started going to church. And one day the preacher was preaching and Laura's grandmother realized that it was for her she came forward and received Jesus Christ as her savior. And after church, she just started running around saying, it's for me. It's for me too. And she got saved. The significance of one Christian, Ed Parks. So I was able to meet Laura. We're able to have a Christian home. We're able to have children that were able to hear the gospel and grow up in church and know the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. And they have the opportunity to live a Christian life. The significance of one Christian. Let me tell you something. Bob Lee, Ed Parks, they'll never be listed with William Tyndale and Gaudentius and and Petillion. They'll never be listed with these great Christians that have been listed in the past. But let me tell you something, they're important to me. Who is it that led you to the Lord? Who is it that you have the opportunity to influence? I want us to take a few minutes and look at the life of someone in the Bible who is not really known as this great orator, But let's look at them. Go to Acts chapter 4. The significance of one Christian. Look at verse 33, Acts chapter 4, verse 33. The Bible says, "...and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. This man Barnabas, this is the first account of Barnabas that we have in the scriptures. He's called the son of consolation and we will see why in a minute. But what happened with Barnabas, was that he believed the truth of the apostles. The Bible says in Acts 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Here in chapters 3 and 4, the apostle Peter has been preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 12, It says this, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus Christ. Is that right? That's what Barnabas believed. And his belief in the truth required him to invest in ministry. And honestly, the Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He believed in the ministry of the apostles and in the beginning of the churches. He believed in it so much that he was willing to give everything that he had. What he believed influenced what he did. David felt the same way in 2 Samuel twenty-four twenty-four, He's buying a piece of land. And the king said unto Aaronua, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. See, what we need to understand is that when you really believe something and when you really love something, you have to invest in it. Amen? You have to invest in it. It's really important that we see that. His belief in the truth required investment in ministry. This is Barnabas, the son of consolation. The first thing that we learn about him was that he was willing to give everything to God. The second thing that we learn about him is in Acts chapter 9. His belief in the truth required him to invest in people. His belief in the truth required him to invest in people. Look at Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 19. And when he had received me... So let me give you a little background for this. The apostle Paul, his name was Saul, and he was a persecutor of Christians. And now God has supernaturally intervened in his life. He'd spoken to him. Saul has been saved, all right? And he goes and he's with a man named Ananias who who helps him. Now, verse 18, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. So the Apostle Paul had received Jesus Christ, so he follows the Lord in baptism. Verse 19, And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, that would be really easy for Paul to do because he had the whole Old Testament memorized. So now he has the Holy Spirit of God in him and he knows the Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament. And so he could walk into the synagogue and right off the top of his head, he could preach Jesus Christ to these people. How many of you wish that you had that ability right now to get the Bible memorized and you could go and just preach the gospel? So now, look at what happens. Verse 21. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Now, wouldn't you do the same thing? If there's some guy that had just killed your brother and now he's preaching the gospel, how many of you would be wary of that man? Right? Nobody. Look, nobody raised their hands. They just got a lot of forgiving people here in the room. Or you don't like your brothers, one of the two. Okay, now look at verse 22. But Saul increased the more and more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So that is truly, he really is the Christ. Verse 23. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming and going out of Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. And it goes on. How did all this happen? So now the apostle Paul, or Saul still, he begins preaching Christ, he comes to Jerusalem, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. But there was a man named Barnabas, who because of his belief in the truth, believed that he needed to invest in people. And what did he do? He invested in someone that no one else would invest in. Do you know that you might not be a person who has the whole Old Testament memorized, but you can invest in someone that no one else would invest in. You can believe in someone that no one else would believe in. You know, I am so thankful. When I was in Bible college the first time, I was the biggest clown in the world, man. Uh, I I wasn't. Th- I was there to date and play sports. That's what I was doing. Now, date—that's sit by a girl in chapel. Don't think I wasn't a playa. So it was just. <laughs> but so, but still, I was. I was just a clown, and there was a man there. His name was Mark Rasmus, and he's vice president at West Coast Baptist College now, and he invested in me. He believed in me. I was in one of his history classes one time, and you know, being the great student that I was, I'm sitting all the way in the back reading a Tom Clancy novel during class. Next thing I know, an eraser hits me in the head. He threw an eraser from the front of the class and hit me all the way at the back of the class because he believed there was something in me. Um, But I'm just so thankful that Mark Rasmus had invested in me He believed in me. And we just had a question. We just had a conversation this week. And um, he said this. He said, you know, all those years ago, I saw something in you. So what is that? It's 1981? 30? How long ago is that? Laura says she was 10. (laughs) I know I didn't rob the cradle. I waited for her to fall out. It's true. Um, But all those years ago, he invested in me. He saw something in me that other people didn't. And I'll bet you everybody in here has a testimony like that, that someone was willing to invest in you. Here's the question. Are you willing to be that person for someone else? Are you willing to do that? He was willing to invest in people because he believed in the truth. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So this is really there's been kind of a parenthesis, and this is taking up from Acts chapter eight. Look at verse nineteen. So we're in Acts chapter eleven and verse nineteen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, so and you know Paul, Saul was the one who had done that, travelled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only, and some of them were men of Cyprus and of Cyrene, which. When they were come to Antioch, spake unto the grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now remember why they're only speaking to the Jews. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 and verse five, he sent out the disciples, and he said, "Go not into the way of the Samaritans, but only unto the lost, but preach only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." All right. Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, he says, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel." Acts chapter one, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel." But that was a change. And the Apostle Paul made it very clear in the book of uh, Romans that the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. And that's what they would do. They would go to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, and that's what's going on here, the Greeks, the Grecians. Now look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church was at Jerusalem, and they sent forth, look at this, Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Now, why is this important? Because now Barnabas is going to establish a church in Antioch and preach to these people, and it was out of that church at Antioch that we get our Bible. There are two lines of manuscripts. One goes back to Origen in Alexandria, Egypt. There's another line of manuscripts that goes back to Antioch. Who is the one that God sent to Antioch to begin preaching to those Greeks? Who was it? It was Barnabas, the son of consolation. Why? He was willing to invest in people. Now, remember, it's really important. Do you know how he was described in Acts chapter 4? He's called a Levite. Not only was he a a Jew, he was of the tribe of Levi who were the priests. This is the most (laughs) devout tribe in Israel. And what is he doing? He's going to Antioch and preaching to Greeks. It's really important. Do you know what he was willing to do? He was willing to love people outside of his own race. He was willing to cross racial barriers to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that he has made of all nations one blood, that we're all just people, and there's still too much racial division in the world. And Barnabas is one of the first people to cross those racial divisions. Philip began it going to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 9, and then Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 9. But here we are in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, Barnabas preaching to the Grecians. It's really important that we see that. He was willing to invest in people. Now, look at what happens. Verse 23, "...who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord." For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Isn't that good? It, notice, it doesn't say, and he was a great orator. He was a thundering speaker. He was a very winsome man with a great personality. No, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. First time I ever sang in chapel in college, and my first solo. When I get scared, I, I just go blank. I got up there, I started singing my song, and pfft, I just Stopped looking out a 1,000 people or 2,000 people or whatever it was. And so Dr. Evans, the president of the college, he got up. I basically just stopped. He got up and he said, what, what are you going to say after that? He said, Jim's a good guy. <laughs> that's like saying a girl has a good personality, right? It's the, it's the same thing. <laughs> he's a good guy. Well, that's the description that God gives of Barnabas. He's, he's a good man. He's just a good man. Now, look, you might not be the Apostle Paul and able to memorize the whole Bible. That might not be you. You might not be the Apostle Peter who's willing to take on a whole army by himself. That might not be you. You might not be be the Apostle John who was so close to Jesus Christ that he would lean on him at dinner. That might not be you, but you can be a good guy. You can be someone that loves people, who's willing to invest in people, and look at what God did with him. How many of you are thankful that you have a Bible? right? Barnabas. Barnabas, the significance of one Christian. There's so much more that we could say about it. But I want to show you one more thing. His belief in the truth required the confrontation of error. Look at Acts chapter 13. This is a consistent theme through the scriptures that you can be a person who's willing to invest in someone that no one else is willing to invest in. You can be a person who's willing to invest and give your money. You can be a person that's willing to cross racial lines and invest in people that someone else you know might not. You can do all of those things, but if you refuse to confront error, then you'll never be the person that God wants you to be. Look at what happens. Go to Acts chapter 14. I'm sorry, it's Acts chapter 13, and look at verse 44. Another cross out in your Bible. Acts 13, and look at verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have, sent, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust off of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Now, what did they do? They were willing to confront religious people who would reject the Bible and tell them they could not have eternal life. Do you see that? Look at what it says in verse uh, 49 again, or verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves, look, unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. There's only one way to be saved. It's by believing in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. That's it. And if you reject that, you are unworthy of eternal life. Let me say that again. If you reject salvation through the Word of God, you are unworthy of eternal life. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter if mom was godly and dad was a deacon. It does not matter. You are unworthy of eternal life if you refuse the gospel. How are you worthy of eternal life? Receive the gospel. Believe the Bible. Receive the gospel. And they left. They left preaching in that area. Now, it's very important that we get this. You need to receive the gospel. And Barnabas, with Paul, was willing to boldly tell these people there's only one way to salvation. So what does this tell us? That I think Barnabas probably had the gift of mercy, don't you think? I think Barnabas had the gift of mercy. He was willing to invest in people that others weren't. He was willing to give to causes that other people weren't. He was willing to love people that other people weren't. He was willing to cross racial boundaries when those boundaries were hard fixed in society. But he was also willing to confront error. The problem with most people with the gift of mercy is they're willing to do all those other things, but they're not willing to confront error. And honestly, they get mad and get their feelings hurt when someone else does that. How about this? We may not be able to be the Apostle Paul and memorize the whole Bible. We might not be the Gospel of John that God gives special revelation to. We might not be the Apostle Peter who's willing to take on a whole army by himself. We might not be that, but we can be a good man. We can be a good woman through the power of the Holy Spirit and invest in the lives of Of other people. I'm glad Bob Lee pulled up outside my dad's house, rolled down the window, and said, Hey Bob, you going to church? Can you imagine? That is so funny. You know, I had never heard that story before. I called my dad this morning and he told me that. I had never heard that before this morning. I'm so thankful for Bob Lee. I'm so thankful that Ed Parks went to a Mormon. You believe that? Isn't that awesome? How many of you have ever talked to a Mormon about the gospel? How many of you have ever done that? It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. But they got saved, and so now I'm able to have a godly wife. The significance of one Christian. I wonder, I wonder down the road who will say, you know what, no one else knows this person, but there is this guy named Aiden Kennedy, and he told me about Jesus. You know, you've probably never heard of this guy, but Brent knew. He, he was my daughter's coach and told her about Jesus, and she told me. You might not know this guy. This guy, his name is Jay Curlis. I played basketball with him, and he, he told me about Jesus. My dad ran track with this guy, Bob Lee. That's how he knew him. The significance of one Christian. Let's bow our heads. Is there someone here that would say, I want to be that person for somebody? I can't memorize the whole Bible, but I can help somebody. Would you raise your hand? I want to be that person. Let's all stand together. Lord Jesus, we need you so desperately.